you know, right about here. That's right about when the show starts. Yeah. Right now. Right. Welcome to episode 50, 5 the big 5 of Uncle Steve's Iron Maiden Zone. First off, I hope that you had a good Christmas and that you are ready for the new year. I know most people are hoping that the new year is not anything like the old year. But, you know, there's been some good things that have happened this year. <laughs> not a ton, you know, but, uh, well, I'm sure there's a lot of great things that have happened amidst it. But anyway, today on the show, I have a guest unlike any other that I've had so far. He is the author of a new book, 666 Songs to Make You Bang Your Head Until You Die. And we had a very enjoyable conversation talking Iron Maiden and many other bands as well. Now, I've got to warn you, though. Make sure you are sitting down for this conversation because we both share some pretty controversial opinions. Yes, and those of you who participated this week, there's quite a few of you, actually. Those that shared Iron Maiden Stories Installment 11. It was shared by Jim Wells from Virginia Beats, Virginia. Andrew Whitnall, the Weekend Warrior from Sussex, England. UK, of course. Luis Mariano from Venezuela. FR at NZ, who I believe is from Earth, the Liverpool Scousers, Don McIntyre and Stephanie Jane Gray, Steve Ritchie from Willem Green, UK, the Feckin' Metal podcast from Ireland, 
Wayne's Iron Maiden podcast from Birmingham, UK, the Metal Chat podcast with Melissa from Boston, Massachusetts, Alejandra, who lives in Italy, Andy, who lives in Falkirk, UK, and Kirsty, who lives in Perth, Australia, all shared it on Twitter, or retweeted it, I should say. Also, it was shared on Facebook by the Liverpool Scousers and Melissa in Boston. Now, if you were listening, you also know I released a special Christmas episode that was shared by the following people. On Facebook, it was shared by the Liverpool Scousers. And on Twitter, it was shared by Dean Longnecker from Columbia, South Carolina. Stephanie Jane Gray from Liverpool, UK. Luis Mariano from Venezuela. And Andy in Falkirk, UK. And I wanted to let y'all all know if you are on the Facebook group. I have created a new Facebook page. Uh, I talked with somebody about some things, and it sounds like it's a little bit better to do it that way uh, with a Facebook page as opposed to a group. So if you are in the Facebook Uncle Steve Iron Maiden Zone group, please go over and like the Uncle Steve Iron Maiden Zone page because I'm going to delete the group at some point, and I would like to get everybody over. I know people got on there because they wanted to follow along. So if that was you and you want to continue, please go over there and like the page, not the group, the page. Yeah, I'm confused by it. So, (laughs) all right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to Uncle Steve's Iron Maiden Zone. Today, I have an author with me. This is a first for me. I've never had, other than Luis, uh, which is a friend, I've never had an author that I've never met before. This is a guy, has a brand new book that just came out. It's called 666 Songs to Make You Bang Your Head Until You Die. His name is Bruno McDonald, and he lives in South Africa. Bruno, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Uncle Steve. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate you coming on. It's it's always interesting to talk uh, rock with people. Now, obviously, people will probably notice that you may not have a. I've never, you know, I've only met one person from South Africa, so you probably they probably notice you don't have a South African accent, right? I don't know. I was actually, I was born and raised in East London, not too far from, from where the band began, actually. So I, I, I lived in, an, in Leytonstone, and Leytonstone gave uh, the world Alfred Hitchcock, David Beckham, Iron Maiden, and me. <laughs> well, as long as we got Iron Maiden from there, I'm happy. <laughs> oh. Now, um, I tell you what... Um, I was looking, uh, doing a little research on you, um, and you've got a website that has 
a lot of other things you've worked on as an editor, a writer, a researcher, a ghostwriter, uh, other things as well. Um, now I wanted to read a few of the titles here that I, that I got from there. Um, because I think that a lot of these things would interest a lot of people. Um, and, and, and one thing I'll, I'll note right off the bat is you have an, uh, you like to be involved with things that involve the number 1001, (laughs) (laughs) but I've got here, I've got 1001 TV series. You must watch before you die. Uh, I I got vinyl, the art of making records. That's interesting. These are, these are all things that I thought were interesting to me. There's a few I didn't list on here, but um, 1001 walks. You must experience before you die. The greatest albums you'll never hear, the greatest movies you'll never see, and this air guitar, a user's guide. Um, uh, air guitar, a user's guide. That book is is an unheralded classic. I, I I think when I die, people will be like, "That was the guy. That was the guy that wrote the book about air guitar. He's a legend." <laughs> I've got a, I've got a question about it later on here too. Um, uh, two more. I got 1,001 songs you must hear before you die and 1,001 albums you must hear before you die. And I know um, the time range on here is is pretty far back too because you've got obviously the new book came out this year and you go all the way back at least as far back as that goes is 1994. So um, first question I have for you is, what made you decide that you wanted to get involved in the process, all the different processes of uh, writing books, editing books, and everything involved in putting books together? What got me really involved in in the first place was when I was about eight or nine, I read the, uh, the sci-fi comedy book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. And that's such a beautifully written book that it really made me want to uh, spend my life writing. And I was really lucky that um, in 1994, I got to meet Douglas Adams, who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I met him back backstage at a Pink Floyd show, and oh, cool. I completely ignored Pink Floyd. And I was talking to Douglas Adams. <laughs> he was about eight foot tall, and he spoke exactly as he wrote in these really beautifully constructed sentences. And I was kind of groveling at his feet, telling him what an inspiration he'd been to me. And uh, he was really, he was really super nice. And then he broke off after a few minutes, and he said, "Who are you?" And uh, I said, "Oh, I'm just a fan." And um, so I feel really, really blessed to have to have met him. And then when I was about thirteen, I guess fourteen, I got involved in co-editing a fanzine about Pink Floyd. I'd been listening to Pink Floyd since I was a really little kid because my parents both liked them. So I was listening to Dark Side of the Moon when I was about six years old. And then when I think when I turned eight, I think they bought me the compilation album Relics by the Floyd. So I was really brought up in that kind of environment, um, a love of words and a love of music. And then that came together in working on the Pink Floyd fanzine, which I did for about 10 years. And then that kind of parlayed into writing books about music as well. That's that's really neat that you got to meet the guy who influenced you to do what you chose as a career path. I mean, that's not a lot of people get to do that. <laughs> you know, it's, they it's don't. I do feel I, I feel really lucky, actually, because I've met a couple of my heroes over the years. And uh, by and large, I've not been disappointed. So Douglas Adams was certainly a, a highlight of my life. I also got to meet um, Nikki Six 
and he was a really lovely guy. He was, I met him when the crew had all sobered up. I met him on the Dr. Feelgood tour and he was such a, he was such a humble guy, such a quiet guy, so patient. It was, it was really nice to meet someone that you admire because I've been listening to Motley since, I don't know, since I was 12, I think. And um, so to meet him was a thrill. And, and the, the biggest one, I guess, was meeting Dio because I met him on the Sacred Heart tour and he and that was such a thrill. It was a thrill just to meet Jimmy Bain, who was his bassist, bassist at the time. Um, and then to meet Ronnie James Dio himself. And he took me on a tour of the stage and he gave me curry for the first time in my life. And he, <laughs> he uh, gave me like an armful of merchandise and he arranged tickets to the to another show. And uh, so that was a real thrill. So I've met a few people that I've admired, but um, I've never met any of the Maiden guys, actually. I, I would love to meet them. It would be nice to, to go for a beer with Steve Harrison, talk about Leighton Stone and Walthamstow, where <laughs> he grew up and so did I. Uh, and I've never had the opportunity to do that. I think the closest that I got was when, uh, do you remember the uh, the Rockade Armenia version of Smoke on the Water that came out in 1990? And Bruce was on that. And I went to the press launch of that and, and Bruce was there. But that's the only that's the, uh. that's the, the closest that I've got to, to meeting the Maiden guys. I've never met any of them other than Bruce. Oh, cool. Well, I will say this and this is I hope I don't turn anybody off to uh, listening to my podcast when I say this. But I'm not a fan <laughs> of Dio. <laughs> and I know that's like a cardinal sin in the uh, rock and roll world. I don't think he's a bad singer. I just never, I never got into his music a whole lot as far as I tried to. I remember having the last in line way back in the mid eighties and, or I guess that was around when it was out. And, but, but I've heard nothing but just incredible things about the way he treated fans. And like what you're saying there is so what everybody hears about him. Like that he just always took the time to really, really give fans the ultimate experience. And I mean, that really, I have so much respect for him as a, as a uh, person and the way he treats people, because like you said, well, you didn't say this, but you can meet people that can really, you know, burst your bubble. And he, I've never heard any story from anyone ever saying other than I've heard stories from musicians themselves that had to work with him and had, you know, some experiences, but that's, that's just working with somebody, but man, that's really, that's really, really cool. I I think that's yeah, really, he, he was, he was, a, he was a great guy. He he was really generous with his time and he, he made me, I was just another, you know, I was a spotty 14 year old. I was a, a, like one of many spotty 14 year olds. I'm sure he's met throughout his entire career, but he was so generous uh, yeah. And he really made you feel that you were the most important person in the room and not him. And that was extraordinary. And I think um, I, I do value that because uh, I, I, I like people who are rock stars. Um, uh, you and I, uh, we share an interesting kiss. And so and th those guys are rock stars. And if I met Gene Simmons, for example, I, I'd expect him to behave in a certain way <laughs> and 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 I, and I don't I don't think I'd be disappointed if 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 he was like that. But then and then if you met, uh, but then I'd expect it, that if you met any of the Maiden guys, for example, I'd expect them to be a great deal more down to earth. And everything that they've done throughout their career, really, um, they they really seem to have been uh, they they seem to have put them and their management. They seem to have put the fans first, 
Um, there's, there, whatever they do, they always seem to factor in what are the fans going to think about this and how much, you know, how much are the fans going to pay for tickets, for example. Um, and uh, in Britain, I don't know what it was like in, in America. I guess it was slightly different in America. But in Britain, for example, Maiden carried on playing theatre sized venues way, way after they could have filled arenas. And that that was almost like a point of principle for them. I think it wasn't until 88 where they started playing anything that was like larger than 3,000 seats in Britain um, because they wanted to retain that connection with the fans. And and I like, I like both worlds. You know, I, I like, I, I'm a huge fan of Kiss. I'm a huge fan of Madonna, but I don't know that I necessarily want to meet those people in real life because I'm not sure how gratifying they would be. I'm not sure how patient they would be. I'm not sure how interested they are in what fans think. But then you've got people at the other end of the spectrum, like Maiden, like Dio, who are also huge acts, but are maybe more interested in in the people who put them there in the first place. And and that shows in the fandom. You know, the fans, I think the fans realize that. Um, I've been seeing Kiss for years, and, you know, I've seen them. The first time I saw them was on the Crazy Nuts tour in 1988. And worst set list of any tour they've probably ever done but absolutely and 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 you follow their trajectory of their career i mean hot in the shade and revenge were good set lists um when they got back into the reunion it was you know an alive set list basically and it stayed that way for a bunch of years i believe when they did the farewell tour they broke out some different things a little bit but you look at what they've done. I did an episode one time where I compared the three most recent Iron Maiden concerts I've seen and the three most recent Kiss shows I've seen. And the uh, and obviously Iron Maiden playing a lot longer songs, but Iron Maiden played more different songs in those three shows than Kiss did on their three shows. And it's amazing to me that that Kiss seems to still make a set list that is very, very aimed toward the the fan that only knows Lick It Up, Heaven's on Fire, I Love It Loud, you know, just the just the hit songs or whatever. And it really, I know that, you know, there's an ocean of Kiss fans that feel the same way as being frustrated about it. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I do think, um, I think Maiden are a textbook example of how to grow old gracefully and kiss are a textbook example of how to grow old disgracefully i <laughs> i have abs- i haven't seen kiss in the past 20 years and i've got no interest in seeing them now because i think it would just be abhorrent whereas seeing maiden now because as you say you, you, you don't know necessarily what they're going to do so if you go and see legacy of the beast then obviously you expect a greatest hit set but then they might also do a tour like they did for um was it a matter of life and death where they played the entire album in sequence yeah, to start the yeah. show oh, i yeah. think when you're um what what would be the terrible term when you're a legacy act or a heritage act or whatever demeaning actually <laughs> attached to people who are more than 10 years old yeah. um you don't you don't expect anyone to do that and i remember um i can't remember it was a promoter talking about either the the rolling stones or pink floyd when they came back in the 80s and they were saying that they would really rather that those kind of heritage acts 
didn't put out new material because what they want is to sell tickets on the basis of, of, of your back catalogue and they don't want um, you to put out a new album that might actually alienate those fans. So for Maiden to do something like that, here's our entire new album um, <laughs> yeah. full of six minutes, seven minutes, eight minute songs in order and you're going to listen to all of this before we before we play Rothschild or Number of the Beast or whatever. I think that's really ballsy, but I think that's also that determination and that um, idiosyncrasy, they're not going to fall into the trap of, 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 of doing exactly what everyone expects. Um, so I think that is, I think that's really to be admired. I don't like everything that Maiden do these days, but I, I hugely admire them because I think their integrity really can't be questioned in that respect. Yeah. That's something that I think is really cool that when you see a maiden tour, like they, when they ever since 1999, when Bruce came back, they did a new album. Then they released a live album. They did six songs live from the new album on a, on a tour where people are probably going, man, I want to hear two minutes to midnight. I want to hear aces high. I want to hear number of the beast. I want to hear, you know, they want to hear the classics and they did. And then they, they've, they've got a real pattern as far as album, tour for the album then they'll do some kind of greatest hits but they change it up like uh in 2012 and 13 they basically redid a tour from 1988 the they called it the maiden england which was the seventh son of a seventh son tour for the most part they you know they they changed it up a little bit but i love that they do those type of things as opposed to what kiss does which is every show you pretty much know you're going to hear 12 or 13 of the same songs every time. And you're just like, like I took my kids and my wife to see the end of the road tour. And it was, it was really interesting because I had a different perspective because I knew that my daughter had never seen them. So it was, it was cool to hear that. It was cool to, you know, to look at it a little bit different lens, but you know, we still all left the show and my wife my son and daughter all at separate times asked me the same exact question. What's wrong with Paul's voice? <laughs> Which is, you know, yeah. that's, that's not what you want to hear. But I was just like, you know what? He's, he's saying his, uh, he's saying he's given it his all for 40 years and he just doesn't have much of a voice left. And while I don't, you know, you wish they would sound like they did before, but it's understandable. And, I threw out this opinion one time. Let me ask you what you'd think of this because you're you're a big Kiss fan, and I I'm telling you, I was in a a private Kiss group when I said this, and I mean, I had people asking me if I was on drugs when I said this, but <laughs> so you know, there's a big group of Kiss fans that feel like they're really mad that Tommy Thayer and Eric Singer wear the makeup of Ace and Peter, right. and. And and you've even probably heard things of Gene or or and or Paul saying, one day there's going to be a kiss without any of us in it. It'll just be four guys wearing the makeup. So I said, I think it would be because Gene's voice is still there. He doesn't have as much demand on his voice when he sings. So I said, how about if Kiss were to find somebody to replace Paul Stanley right now and get. Someone that can sing the songs 
the way they're meant to be sung. And I said, even if Paul Stanley still is on the tour, maybe he introduces the songs. Maybe he tells a story about a song. He's still there in whatever capacity, but get somebody that can actually sing the songs the way they're meant to sound. And I mean, you would have thought that I said that people should just go out and start murdering uh, (laughs) dogs or something. I mean, they were very upset about that. And I was like, look, I love going. I mean, I saw Kiss on Crazy Nights. I saw them on Hot in the Shade, Revenge, uh, the first the first reunion sh- shows, and he was phenomenal on those shows. He sounded great. But how how would you feel about that if they announced we are going to uh, have a guy come out on the road and sing these songs as Paul Stan, you know, for Paul Stanley? How would do you think that? How do you, how do you feel about that? Um, I, I feel that um, as long as people still have the opportunity to see those bands, um, then I'm I can't dictate um, what form those bands should be in. I think that one of the things is I I was really lucky. I saw Kiss for the first time in '83 on the Ooh. Look It Up. I would have loved to have seen them on the um, on the tour they did in 1980 where they had Maiden supporting them, although they oh. Maiden didn't support them in Britain. They just supported them in mainland Europe. Yeah. Um, but so I, I'm lucky. I got to see uh, Maiden at that. Uh, sorry. I, I got to see um, Kiss at that point in their career. Um, and, and I'm glad that they're still out there doing it in whatever form they're doing it, whether it's with, with Tommy and Eric or, or, or with Paul's voice shot now, um, because, it, it, you know, I, I would, I would love to have seen Zeppelin, for example, but I was too young. Um, they, 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 um, John Bonham died around the time that I was getting into hard rock music when I was a kid. Um, but I would love them to be out there and I wouldn't particularly care as long as Pagey was there and ideally Robert on vocals. I'm not sure that I would particularly care who else was. And today, um, earlier today, you were talking about um, could, could Maiden survive if Dave or Adrian left? And yeah. obviously no no Maiden fan wants to see either of those guys, um, either of those guys leave. Right. But if, if it, if it meant, if they, if, if if the band carrying on and being available for kids to see um, meant that you have to replace them and move on, then do it because we're entering this kind of strange time where where the where where people are dying. You know, we've lost so many people. You know, Lemmy, uh, Bowie, um, yeah. Dio, all the all the great names that uh, Pete Way, um, all the all the great names that we've lost over the past few years. The, the the door is closing on the opportunity to see those guys. And I would rather that people see now or see Maiden now, that they get the opportunity to do it, even if it's not the same as it would have been if they'd seen them in the 80s, because I, 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 that's the way that this music is going to be kept alive. And, we, and we're running out of classic rock groups. I mean, I love um, Dave Grohl. I think he's a I think he's a great ambassador for rock and roll, and I think the sure. Foo Fighters are a pretty good band. Um, I, I'm not sure that, that the Foo Fighters are necessarily the Led Zeppelin of our generation. I don't think they are. Um, hmm. But the Foo Fighters now, they're, they're classic rock because they've been around so long, and they're the guys that are really doing. They're them and Metallica, and I guess you could yeah. say. 
um, Guns and Roses in whatever form they exist now. Um, <laughs> but but there's, you know, the, the only way that that rock is going to be kept alive is if is if we is if we acknowledge that those guys they're human beings with frailties and we're going to have to make some allowances because I'd rather see them. I'd, like I say, I'd rather that the kids today had the opportunity to see them um, than they were, were forced to only watch them on YouTube and go, man, I wish I was around in 1988. Right. Right. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. I'd, and I don't, and I'll say this um, for anybody that, you know, feels like I might be, <sighs> speaking ill on Paul Stanley or whatever. I definitely don't um, begrudge him for going out and doing it. He's worked very hard over the years to maintain the band and to, I mean, he helped create it. So, you know, I, I'm just a fan. And if he wants to go out there and do that, I don't, you know, it is what it is. It's a matter of if people are still paying to come see you. And like you said, it's better to, for them to be out there in some form and you yeah. did. You did skirt. You did skirt my question, though. You just said you just. <laughs> you didn't. Um, you, as a okay, so let me ask it again in a different way. Just, just a yes or a no. I, I think I know your answer, though. As a Kiss fan, would you be offended if Kiss replaced Paul Stanley and put somebody else in his makeup singing the songs at this point? Absolutely not. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, have a problem with that at all. I, 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 I'd say good luck and God bless. And if people still want to go and see it and enjoy it, then it's fantastic. And at the end of the day, however bad Paul sounds, he's always going to sound better than Vince Neil. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah. There's. Uh, yeah. I won't get into Vince Neil, but there's. I'm sure you've seen the the videos around of of um, just making fun of of how he sounds and he doesn't really sing the words and he just. They put words into his. They, they basically take the things he's saying and make it sound like something else. It's fun. Okay, I'll tell you what. Let me get into here. A question I have for you is: a lot of those books that I mentioned earlier, uh, you said I said there was a hundred. Uh, I'm sorry, a thousand and one. A thousand and one of anything is a lot. So, I, and I believe you collaborated on pe- with other people on these books. So, how long does it take to put together a list like that? Do you get like three or four people and because everyone obviously doesn't have the same interests on saying, say, um, 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So how long does it take to get a list like that together? It takes a, it takes an agonizingly long time. And those books are all international co-productions and they were, uh, the, the international publishers were all very keen to make sure that their territories were represented. So you'd have people from, France, for example, nominating French acts to go in the book that under normal circumstances you wouldn't consider because they simply weren't good enough. But if you want to yeah. sell a book like that around the world, then you have to be cognizant of, of, of the international market. So when I put together my latest book, which is the 666 Songs book, that was in one sense much easier because it wasn't a collaboration and I simply I chose all the songs myself. But on the other hand, I did endeavor to make sure that um, the international territories were well represented. And that's partly a commercial decision because if you want the book published in Germany or Japan, then you'd better make damn sure that there are some Japanese acts and some German acts in it. But then it's also yeah. to expose people to music that they haven't necessarily heard. So one of the things that is a common thread 
throughout those books, one of the things that I always really push for is I don't want to publish a book that simply tells you what you already know. So if I picked up a book about hard rock and it told me that Number of the Beast was the greatest heavy metal album of all time, I would put that book straight back on the shelf because I think, well, that's not an interesting <laughs> choice. Number one, I don't think number of, I think number of the beast is a deeply flawed album. And number two, but, but it's, it's sort of, it's so widely acknowledged by the public as the classic heavy metal album. You know, one of the handful of classic yeah. albums like number of the beast and paranoid. Um, and I think, well, that's, I don't want to read a book like that because that's not very interesting. It shows a complete lack of imagination. And at this point, in 2020 everyone's made up their mind about whether paranoid and number of the beast are great albums or not or um whether the songs off them are great and i would rather read a book that told like so in my new book for example um one of the maiden songs that i've chosen is sea of madness i don't think i don't think there's another maiden fan on the planet who is going to write a book about the band and say that sea of madness is is one of the songs of theirs that you really need to hear but as far as i'm concerned it is and so i hope that people <laughs> would want to read the book and find out well why why does this guy think that sea of madness of all the songs and of all the songs on on somewhere in time that that is the one to listen to yeah i will say um that was one thing you know y- I don't have the book yet, but you sent me a list of the maiden songs that were in the book, and I was, I was definitely pleasantly surprised that it wasn't the number of the beast and run to the hills and you know wasted years and and I'm not saying whether I'm not gonna and I'm not gonna spoil it. I'm not gonna say whether or not any of those songs are in there or not either. But but I, it wasn't just cookie cutter, and I, I certainly I find myself being a fan that. I like all the songs, but I, I tend to find myself being an outsider when it comes to a lot of the opinions that fans have of these songs. I think a lot of people just tend to, well, I think there's two types of Iron Maiden fans at this point. You have Iron Maiden fans that are nostalgic Iron Maiden fans. They love the eighties era. They love maybe, maybe, you know, from Paul Diano through uh seventh son of a seventh son. And then You've got other fans that like all that stuff as well, but they like everything that they've done after 2000. Some of us even like the um, the albums that were done in the 90s with Blaze Bailey. <laughs> but uh, but it, I, I like that because saying even picking a song like Sea of Madness, that's not – I don't know that Iron Maiden has fair weather fans too much other than the ones that are stuck in the, ni- in the 80s, but – that's obviously not a choice of a fair weather fan that's going to just be going, Oh yeah, I love uh heaven can wait and wasted years and, and picking, you know, picking more of the hits, the, the more popular things. So I, I, I respect that. <laughs> I think that's cool. Yeah. I think Maiden have really striven more than any other band that them and Metallica, I think they're, they're the bands who have really shown themselves to be, um comfortable with with doing both things so if you go to a metallica show then obviously you're you're always going to hear sandman you're always going to hear seek and destroy but you are pretty much always going to hear probably a good handful of songs from whatever their latest album is and the same with maiden as well and one of the things that i've always thought was extraordinary about extraordinary about maiden and i i i'm not sure if it's maybe 
from what you're saying, it sounds like there's a slightly different perspective in the States than there is in Britain. But in Britain, I've always felt that their fans were always interested in what they were doing next and very receptive to what they were doing next. And the yeah. people would people would go out and buy the album on the day it was released, you know, historically um, oh, yeah. maiden albums, like with a lot of, with like a lot of metal acts, those albums will go in really high in the charts and, uh, and then they'll bomb out like, three or four weeks later because everyone who's interested buys them on the first day but then they'll go home they'll play it over and over again they'll they'll read all the lyrics and by the time that they go and see the show they're really primed for it and they're singing along i'm I'm, one of the one of the memories that really really sticks with me and i'm 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 sorry to cite a memory from the 80s because it's going to sound like i'm stuck in the 80s but it's just (laughs) you're okay it's stuck with me so for all these decades was hearing a broadcast of the um Castle Donington Monsters of Rock headliner that they did in 1988. And uh-huh. it's such an exciting show. And they, but you can hear 108,000 people, because I think that's what the audience was at that event. You can hear 108,000 people all singing along from start to finish. But they're not just singing along with The Trooper and Number of the Beast. They're also singing along with the stuff from Seventh Son that's just come off, that's only just been released pretty much. And I think Maiden fans, uh, in that sense, they're really interested in in what the band are doing. And I think it's um, one of the really heartwarming things that I I like is that um, Maiden got their first top 10 album in the States in 2006, I think. I think it was Matter of Life and Death. And I think oh, wow. if, if, if you can have your first top 10 album in the States after you've been doing it for 30 years, then that, <laughs> that demonstrates that it demonstrates two things. One, it demonstrates that you're doing something right, because if you look at the back catalogue of um, an act like Deep Purple, for example, like Deep Purple have not had a hit album or anything even remotely approaching a hit album in America since 1974, 1975. You know, if, if they put an album out now, they're lucky to scrape into the top 200. Whereas yeah. you've got Maiden, who are who who can expect now for for the past 14 years that every album they put out is going to make it into the American top 10. So I think that's a testament both to them as musicians who are still interested in in what they can do creatively, and I think it's also a testament to the fans. Who, who aren't only buying the greatest hits albums. You, you mentioned earlier that they're on this cycle of studio album tour greatest hits. And the greatest hits, I, I guess that kind of keeps things ticking over. But those greatest hits albums, they always chart much lower than the studio albums. And so I think that's encouraging. I think the point at which Maiden maybe would be worried or would be thinking about hanging their boots up is at the point where, you know, Iron Maiden's greatest hit starts outselling whatever they're currently doing, but I don't think they're at this at that stage yet. And I think that's a remarkable tribute to a band who have been doing it for so very long. Well, actually, I'll re- I'll, I'll just what I meant was um, they do an album and then an album tour and then the next tour they I, I don't know that they're releasing too many greatest hits on, but the next tour they'll do will always be some sort of a greatest hits type of a tour. So yeah, but I mean, that, they, they, yeah. Um, I don't know how many, uh, you know, I'm kind of looking at it from a European perspective. They've certainly put out quite a few kind of greatest hits type compilations. But what I will say is that those those hits compilations, 
they're excellent. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it, as much as I'm paying tribute to, to Maiden's creativity and the fact that they are still looking for new avenues, um, yeah. if, you, if, you want, if you want a really good rock metal album, put on an Iron Maiden greatest hits because it doesn't get much better than that. If you've, if you've got 12 <laughs> or 14 of, of, of Maiden's best things, then that really is all killer, no filler. This is true. This is true. Got to agree with that. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask about a couple of your older books here. Um, and I, I'm probably going back and forth here, but um, one book that seemed really interesting that I mentioned a minute ago was, uh, it was called 1001 Walks You Must Experience Before You Die. So um, I, I have, it's a two-part question. I Two parts is first part is how on earth do you find this many places to walk? And second part is how many of these walks have you actually made yourself? Well, um, I'm, I'm spoiler alert. I've done virtually none of them myself. Um, those, <laughs> all, all of those, uh, thousand and one books there, there, they, there's a, a big international team that contributes to those. So okay, um, okay. my role, uh, although I did, uh, write a lot of things in in a lot of those thousand one books. My my job was really kind of putting it together and making it cohesive, um, gotcha, a, a, and making it publishable. Because quite often the people who um, can write are not necessarily the people who can communicate that information um, so well to a reader. So you really need an editor who is going to interpret um, sure. their enthusiasm and their knowledge in a way that other people can understand. And then you and then you've got to make sure that everything is correct as well so th that was really my job was kind of marshalling all this stuff into into publishable form and i had a more of a creative input on the thousand and one albums and thousand and one songs books um, okay, and I, was, okay. I was really the the um the guy who was in all of those cases i was kind of pushing for stuff i was pushing for harder stuff um what one of the interesting um phenomena that i've observed um, throughout my publishing career. It sounds very grand when I call it that, but that's, <laughs> that's what it is. Um, or, yeah. or, or if you put it in my wife's um, words, it's sitting on your ass and writing about the Rolling Stones. That, that's how she sums up what, what I do. But um, <laughs> one of the interesting things is that um, publishers are not receptive to hard rock and metal at all. Um, right. they don't, they don't think it's cool and they're not interested in doing books about them. And so the, the book that I've just had published, the 666 songs book, um, I've spent years trying to get that off the ground because I got told that it was too niche and you think, well, that's a pretty bloody huge niche because you're talking about people like Maiden. You're talking about people like Metallica, Guns N' Roses, Zeppelin, ACDC, who have yeah. a huge international profile. And if you want to sell out a, a football stadium anywhere in the world, or if you want to sell a T-shirt, or in my case, if you want to sell a book, then put Maiden on it or put Angus Young on it or put Metallica yeah. on it or Zeppelin because those are the, the, the acts that are – recognizable and adored and bought by the truckload around the world but they're not uh, the people who who, are, who get involved in publishing they're cooler than that so if you if you came to them with a, a book about i don't know electronica or something or you came to them with i, I I'm, I'm struggling to think of a, a viable example now but something that's a lot sure. cooler than iron maiden or metallica because that those things 
people think that if you're 14 years old, then you're a fan of Guns N' Roses and Iron Maiden and Metallica. And that's true because I was a fan of, of those people when I was when I was 14 years old, but I'm still a fan of them now as I hurtle towards middle age and I still want to read about them. And I think there's a lot yeah. around, the, around the world. And, um, and so it, it comes back to what you were talking about earlier about the nostalgia versus the looking forward. Um, so on the one hand, I, I'm reassured that Maiden are still around because they were such an important part of my growing up. They were really, and I think I think this is probably true for a lot of people, certainly in Britain and and, and definitely in Europe, and, and I guess maybe even in America as well, that Maiden was such a key part of getting them involved into uh, and, and making them fans of harder music that that you're you're grateful to them that they're still around um, because they make yeah. you feel like you're a teenager again. But on the other hand, you don't <laughs> you don't only want to hear them doing Number of the Beast because then it really would be like you know Kiss trotting out Love Gun at every show. So that again is, is I, I I I I think I'm repeating myself here, but I really admire Maiden for that. Oh yeah, that, yeah that for they sure. have that they've got a foot in both worlds. Okay, another question about. I got two more questions about your older books here. Uh, you said you had the book one hundred. Ah, why do I keep wanting to say one hundred and one? A thousand and one songs you must hear before you die. How many of those songs do you think made your list of six hundred and sixty-six? Oh, really? Few, really, very, very few. Because um, I, I again, I was I was pushing against the same kind of snobbery and elitism. Gotcha. Not, not from my collaborator. My my co-author is very receptive of that. But the um, but the crossover is really, really small. So I sure. think there's, there's like um, uh, running with the devil is in both. Detroit Rock City is in both. Um, and um, do you know it's what? Awesome. I'm, I'm, a, a, a black metal by Venom. Bizarrely enough, black metal by Venom is in <laughs> as well. But actually, the the crossover is is very very small. And again, that comes back to what I was saying about having more freedom with the six 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 book because I chose Obvious, all the songs yeah. myself. So I was less susceptible to publishers saying, "Well, we've got to have Smells Like Teen Spirit in it." It's like I, again, I don't want to write a book that tells you that Smells Like Teen Spirit is. A classic song because you already know that so i'd right. rather tell you that, that breed or um or, or one of the songs off bleach is a nirvana classic for example sure um, sure so yeah that that it was a, it was a more gratifying experience in that respect okay okay now last question i have for you is can <laughs> can you give me a description a brief description of the book called air guitar a user's guide <laughs> Can I give you a brief description? A brief description is that that is a work of unheralded genius. Um, and when, <laughs> when the publishers first approached me and they said, do you want to write a book about air guitar? I said, sure. I said, I said, is it a problem that I don't play guitar? And they said, no, that will actually be a benefit. So right. I just, um, it's, it's, a, it's a how-to guide. For it. Obviously, it's completely tongue-in-cheek. Um, this is sure. not, I, I think, the worst thing in the world would be if I wrote a book like that and took it seriously. But it, it's um, but it's really interesting. What I tried to make sure was that it's it's kind of it's a it's a novelty book. Um, but if you read it, you would come out knowing a bit more about hard rock and metal than you did at the beginning. Because um, one of the things that I've tried to do with every book that I've been involved 
uh, with, certainly the new one, 666 songs, um, is try and put um, quotes and interview snippets from um, either the bands themselves or from other musicians yeah. and stars talking about those songs. I don't think it's very, in- I don't think anyone particularly wants to read what I think. Um, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think there's, I don't think there's thousands of people around the world wondering what I think about uh, the Wicker Man, for example. But, but I think if you read a book um, like mine and in the, in the entry for the Wicker Man, I quote what uh, what Blaze Bailey thinks of it, and so I think that's more interesting. Um, yeah, and yeah. throughout the book, I try to I try to find examples of other acts um, commenting on on songs that they like. So, for example, uh, in the entry for Disposable Heroes, I've quoted Slash and Corey Taylor, for example. So that that's the okay. kind of book that I want to read because when I read books about rock and roll, I want to read the opinions of the people who actually do it. I don't want to read the opinions of someone like myself who's just sitting behind a computer screen because i think i'm fascinating and i've got great taste but i <laughs> yeah. think i think the world at large is probably more interested in what bruce dickinson thinks than what bruno mcdonald thinks right right okay and i, I said i had no more questions but can you tell me about your book called <laughs> 100 things to do in a forest just just to explain to all of uncle steve's listeners my publisher was supposed to send him 666 songs and bizarrely they spent they sent him a hundred things to do in a forest and i would like to read a hundred things to do in a forest um because i i'm i reckon that if, if you worked your way through through to like number 97 or 98 it would be listen to iron maiden really bloody loud in a forest that right yeah that's um and just for anybody out there, if you're interested, it is written by Jennifer Davis. It's 100 Things to Do in a Forest. Yeah, I got a package the other day, and I was like, oh, here's the book. And I opened it up, and I remember looking at it. I was like, I thought, well, maybe this is a a trick, you know, where you open the book up, and then there's gonna the front page is going to be like, ah, I gotcha. It's actually not called this. And I opened it up, and I kind of flipped to the middle of the book, and I'm like, <laughs> Oh my gosh! I think I'm just really, really I'm just, look, cool if there was uh, if there was you know those Where's Waldo books. I, I think uh, it, what would be really cool is if you read through a hundred <laughs> things to do in a forest or whatever it's called, and if you found that Eddie was like leering out at you from like a bush or something, and it's like I did it now I get it I found Eddie on page seventy six or something. I think that you, would be you know cool. I mean on Fear of the Dark Eddie was a tree. He was yeah yeah. Absolutely. So there you go. Uh, but yeah. now I, I laughed. I laughed really hard because I opened it up just to the middle of the book because I was going to read some just to see what was in there. And this is what I opened up to uh, of a hundred things to do in a forest. Sixty eight. This is Bennett. This would be something good for people. It's called. <laughs> it says peeing and pooing in the woods. <laughs> that's oh man! I think um, that's uh, that actually. Um, am I right in thinking that uh, I'm, I'm? I'm sure I'm right in saying that the Wicker Man was inspired by uh bruce looking back on um rock festivals that he'd done that he'd that he'd attended as a fan in like the in the the early 70s i guess and so peeing and pooing in a forest is very relevant to that because if you've ever oh, been yeah, to a rock absolutely. festival you don't want to go into any of the the, the bathroom facilities that they're oh uh, yeah there. You, you, you want to find a tree absolutely absolutely all right okay so um now as far as putting your current book together um, obviously you're a, a, a big fan of heavier music because to 
get that many songs together. Um, where did you start musically? Um, I don't know how far back you go. Is whereas wh- what was the turning point from wherever you were to getting into heavier music? The turning point was um, a British band called Status Quo. So throughout the seventies, um, Status Quo were the they were the only hard rock act that you would um, hear on top forty radio or see on on. Um, we had a, a, a weekly. Uh, music show on on the BBC called Top of the Pops. And Status Quo were the only hard rock act that you were going to see until the advent of Maiden, really. So for anyone of my generation, Status Quo were the gateway drug. And I know they mean virtually nothing in America, um, but they, they were and still are huge in Britain and Europe. And so, um, that was that, that as i say was the gateway drug and um then when maiden came along and the, the new wave of british heavy metal came along so all of a sudden you had um in 1980 you've got acdc all of a sudden becoming um n- not a household name it would be it would be really exaggerating to say that any of these people were household names apart from apart from probably maiden but acdc was suddenly getting in the charts and getting played on on top 40 radio in a very very limited capacity we had Mm -hmm. um one hard rock show on the bbc called the friday rock show which went out from 10 p.m till midnight every week on on a friday and that was the only real um opportunity to hear to hear that sort of music so when i'm saying that acdc and maiden were played on top 40 radio what i mean is that on the shows that were specifically for the chart rundowns the the dj's would have to play that but under normal circumstances you wouldn't <laughs> hear you wouldn't hear that sort of stuff on daytime radio at all and i remember re- really vividly in 1986 um there was one week in 1986 where You Give Love a Bad Name and Girls, Girls, Girls both got into the top 30 or the top 40 in Britain. And all of a sudden you were hearing those songs on daytime radio. And now in 2020, it sounds ridiculous to think that there was anything revolutionary about that because you kind of think of certainly of yeah. uh, You Give Love a Bad Name as a pop song. But I can tell you that at the time, <laughs> um, you, you, you kind of thought, well, the only people who know about um, Bon Jovi in Britain are people who read Kerrang, uh, because the, the person on the street has no idea who Bon Jovi are. So to hear those songs sure. um, on daytime radio was a huge deal. And oh, yeah. the, the only band who, who really had done anything like that before were, were Maiden and ACDC. So um, when Maiden had... Um, when Run to the Hills was a top ten hit, I think I think you could say that was a real turning point for me and for everyone else of my generation who was into that sort of stuff, because that w- that wasn't like anything else we'd ever heard. So y- you might have heard Status Quo, or you might have heard the more commercial stuff that Rainbow were doing um, at the turn of the decade. But when Run to the Hills came out, that's true heavy metal and 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 lo and behold here it is a hit single and <laughs> um and i think that's why they spoke to a lot of people of, of my generation also obviously 
um, there's the there's the whole iconography of it, the whole um, Eddie iconography. And if you're a kid, if if you grow up as I did, loving Spider Man, for example, then naturally you think, oh well, here's this really cool music, and here's this really cool um, graphic imagery that goes with it as well. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think I think if 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 the appeal of, of bands like um, Maiden or Kiss or Slipknot was only founded on their iconography, then I don't think any of those bands would have had an enduring career. And I think that's what people outside metal don't take into account. They'll, they'll kind of look at it and they'll say, they'll look at the Kiss's makeup or they'll look at Eddie or they'll look at Slipknot's mask and then they'll just say, well, this is dumb. This is for kids. And right. well, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with with making music for kids because why shouldn't kids enjoy music as well? I I did, and yeah. I, I loved that stuff when I was a kid, and I, lo- I love it as an adult. But there's no way that Maiden would have had a career since 1976. That that Kiss for around the same amount of time, and even now Slipknot are coming up on being like a legacy heritage style act because they've been around for 20 <laughs> years. Yeah, I know. You 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 don't sustain a career like that unless you've got the songs as well and one thing that that all of those guys have um is song after song after song i mean if like i said earlier if you put on a maiden greatest hits um that's going to be a really really good album the same with kiss and the same with slipknot the same with metallica as well if they ever did a if they ever did a greatest hits album so yeah this is a very long-winded way of saying how did i get Mm -hmm. into heart Hard rock. I, I think you've really got to give a lot of props to to Maiden for entrancing a whole generation of people. Even someone like um, Kurt Cobain. I think I'm right in saying that Kurt Cobain's favorite, uh, sorry, not his favorite, his first concert was it was a Maiden one, and I have a feeling that it was maybe around somewhere in time because that's where they oh, really wow. a big deal. And um, and I, I'm not I'm not going to claim that. The Iron Maiden were a huge influence on on Kurt Cobain yeah. because clearly they weren't. But I think it's still interesting that he he came out of that metal world. You know, when he when he created Nirvana, um, Black Sabbath were a huge influence on him. And you can't. And I'm sure that subconsciously Maiden must have been working their way uh, into what he was doing, even if he wasn't actually going to admit it. Because again. It, it was hardly going to be cool to admit a high, an Iron Maiden influence at that point. Sure, sure. So let me ask you this: in your out of the six hundred and sixty-six songs in your book, how many? And, and maybe you don't know this exact number, but how many different artists are represented among the six hundred and sixty-six songs? Um, I, I've never actually counted them up, but I mean, it's it's a lot. What I wanted to make sure was that some acts were really well re- represented. So Maiden, are um, they've got 13 entries in the book, I think, and so have Slayer. And um, yeah, so I think Maiden and Slayer... Um, are the, are, and Black Sabbath, actually. They're the best represented acts in the book. And I wanted okay. to make sure, um, particularly with with Slayer, it's just because I love them and I think they're, they were a consistently great band from day one. Um, uh, and so, but with Maiden and with Sabbath, what I really wanted to make sure was, was, to, was to shine a light, not just on the really obvious um, 
eras of the band. So like you and I were saying earlier, it would be very boring if we kind of assumed that nothing after Paranoid and nothing after Number of the Beast merited attention because Maiden have done great stuff to date. You know, sure, Book, sure. Book of Souls, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and I'm not going to, you know, kind of, I'm not going to claim that Book of Souls is my favourite Iron Maiden album. It simply isn't. But it's still interesting and they're still doing valid, worthwhile stuff. So I wanted to make sure that all of the eras of the band were, were, were properly represented. And um, as you know, the, 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 the one bit that I glossed over was the, was the Blaze Bailey era. And I know I, I'm, I'm glad that there are people uh, like yourself who like that era of the band, because it would be a shame to think that those two albums just vanished into obscurity. Um, sure. I I didn't like them at all. I I was never. A, I, I simply don't like Blaze's voice. Um, and as I think I, I mentioned to you uh, in an email the other day, um, my my one experience of, of Blaze Bailey in the flesh. I went to see the Public Enemy Anthrax tour that they did together in '92, I think. And on okay. the London stop of that tour. Um, a band called Prong was supposed to be opening it and, and they cancelled for whatever reason. And we got Wolfsbane instead. And so you had kind of a, a, an interesting audience for a, for a metal show because you had this kind of interesting mixture of um, thrash fans and hip hop fans. And yeah. for the hip hop fans who were there, their first exposure to metal in the flesh was, <laughs> was Wolfsbane. Wolfsbane. And I just think, oh, what a bad introduction. I, I feel bad for saying this because Blaze Bailey seems like a really decent guy. He had an incredibly tough job stepping into Maiden, into Maiden and filling those shoes. Um, sure. It, it, would, it would have been a, a near impossible task for anyone. And I admire Maiden for not doing what, Motley did, for example, where they did that one album with John Karabi and it doesn't work, although it's a great album as it happens, but commercially yeah. it doesn't work. And so they pretty ruthlessly kick him straight back out of the band to get Vince Neil back in. Whereas Maiden, bless their white baseball boots, they stuck with Blaze <laughs> and they and they really tried to make it work. And I think when you read interviews with Steve, he'll he'll say, Well, yeah, our commercial profile dipped in in Britain and America, maybe, but in the rest of the world, we're still doing really well, and they're still playing arenas. Um, yeah. So, if 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 the low point of your career um, is well, you go down from headlining the Monsters of Rock to playing arenas, you're still doing pretty bloody well. You're doing better right. than much as I hate to give a kicking to poor old Deep Purple. You're still doing better than Deep Purple, um, <laughs> and uh, so. Again, although I don't like those albums and I didn't feel motivated to represent them in the book, I still admire the mate that Maiden did it, that they stuck to their guns and that they got Bruce and Adrian back into the band at a point where uh, um, creatively it made sense. I I'm, su I'm sure, I'm not naive, I'm sure that um, that it was a commercial decision as well. But I think oh, that, sure. I think that Steve Harris has too much respect for for what he's created to 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 get to get those guys back into the band if he didn't want to. I I think that Steve 
I don't know. I, I, I can't claim to have any more insight into Steve Harris's psyche than anyone else who listens to your show. But I, I think he is a man of integrity. And I think if, if his choice had been, if, if, he, if he hadn't wanted to get Bruce and Adrian back into the band, I think he simply wouldn't have done. And maybe Iron Maiden would have just folded and he would have started British Lion much earlier. Um, right, right. I, I, don't, I don't think he's really interested in following anyone's compass other than his own, which is, which is very, very admirable. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, 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 and you said something about, um, about, you mentioned the, when they had John Karabi and Motley Crue, but the, the thing that I thought that I find admirable about what they did is compared to say what Judas Priest did, they went out and found a guy in a cover band that sounded a good bit like Rob Halford on certain, you know, certain aspects of it. And whereas Maiden just said, you know what, we're going to go in, in a different direction and do something different. And one of the things I think is the is really really one of the biggest telling things about Iron Maiden is and and what they think of the albums that they released is when Bruce came back immediately they did a they did a little tour in 1999 kind of just going around and getting warmed up I guess and they were playing songs in that very first tour that Blaze Bailey sang on you know those two albums which tells me that they believe that what they recorded they recorded quality stuff. Whereas if you go to Judas Priest, when Rob Halford got back to, unless something has changed on their very last tour, they've never played anything that they recorded with uh, Ripper Owens on the two albums. And I find that to be uh, pretty cool. <laughs> I think as far as yeah. for Maiden, it really, it really shows to me, it shows a lot of integrity and respect. So it, it does. And also I think it, it's a tribute to their bravery as well, because um, again, I, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like you and I are kicking Paul Stanley for an hour and a half because you and I both hugely admire Paul Stanley and what he's created. But I, but he is one of the things that he always says is that he doesn't want to stand in a, a stadium or an arena and play like a deep cut that most of the people there are not going to know. He wants he wants that kind of gratification of just playing the greatest hits all the time. And yeah. on the one hand, I understand that, but I think it's a really disappointingly conservative attitude and i think one of the things that you've really got to give it up to maiden for is that they are really really brave and they're not afraid to play a song that maybe the majority of the people in that hall are not going to know because you might um you might really enjoy it i mean earlier you and i were talking privately about alice cooper um and alice's um sets are inevitably um very dominated by the classics and there's nothing wrong with that at all um but when I saw Alice in 2008, the song that made the strongest impression on me was Dirty Diamonds, which was which was one of his contemporary yeah. songs. And so um, I think there's every chance, given that um, Maiden now are attracting fans, you know, you, you, you've taken your kids to, to see Maiden. And so they're really right. attracting this kind of, pan-generational audience so if you're um if, if you're if you're 12 13 14 years old now going to see iron maiden for the first time then you're not going to differentiate between something that they did in 1982 and something that they did in 2008 um sure it, it's it's either going to be good or it's going to be bad it's either going to talk to you or it isn't so when i got into um american hard rock for the first time in the early 80s, um, bands like Aerosmith and Kiss, they were cult bands in Britain. 
you, you simply, their albums didn't chart. They were, their albums weren't necessarily even widely available. They were, they were on import. So Interesting. When, I, when I got into those bands, I got into them in a real kind of like um, backwards way. So my first Aerosmith album was Rock in a Hard Place, for example. And it didn't occur to me that, oh, you're not supposed to like this album because it doesn't have Joe Perry on it and it doesn't have Brad Whitford on it. All I knew was I'm listening to this really extraordinary um, hard rock album. And then you go back right. and listen to all the other stuff. And the same with um, uh, Thin Lizzy. Um, my first Thin Lizzy album was Thunder and Lightning, and that's not what people would think of as being classic Lizzy. And my f- the first <laughs> Sabbath album that I – actually, no, the first Sabbath album that I really fell in love with was probably Live Evil, which is more representative. But then I also love um, Born Again, which is the album that had um, Ian Gillen on Ian vocals. Gillen. And I, and I yeah. guess to to a lot of Sabbath fans – um, th- that would be the same as as you as you saying. Well, you know, I really like, like those Blaze albums. They're really, uh, they're really good, and a lot of it, uh, and, and people like me would go, "Well, you're crazy." But then I get <laughs> you know, I get annoyed when Sabbath fans tell me that Born Again is is no good, and I think, well, this is it's a fantastic album, and I, but and I didn't know that it was a problem that Ian Gillan was singing um, because I'm just thinking, well, this is a great, extraordinary heavy metal album, so. If your first, I don't know, I don't personally know anyone whose first Maiden album was um, the X Factor or, or Virtual Eleven, but it's it's conceivable that for some people oh, around yeah. the world, those were their introduction to Iron Maiden. And if they, if that was, and if that's what got them into the band, and then they worked backwards and they're like, hey, who is this Bruce Dickinson guy? Let alone who is this Paul Diano guy? Then exactly. what an amazing, what an amazing achievement! And um, so I would never want to take anything away from the, the the fact that I'm not personally a fan of his is neither here nor there. At the end of the day, I Blaze Bailey, um, he was in Iron Maiden and I wasn't. And you could right. make an argument, um, you you could kind of make an argument that he saved the band because clearly that's what Steve thought was the right idea at the time. And then a few years down the, the line, they, they're like, well, we'll go in this creatively different direction with Bruce and Adrian, but maybe they needed to go through what they did with blaze in order to get to where they are now. So I would never want to take anything away from, from blaze Bailey. For, I think anyone who's been, been in Iron Maiden is a hero, whether it's, whether you're talking about, Dennis Stratton or whether you're talking about Blaze Bailey or even some of those really early guys who were only in it for like five minutes when they were changing their lineups like every few weeks. Um, right. And the, all of those people helped to create the band that you and I and millions of other people love. So I just got to give maximum respect to all of those guys. I hope that when it's, it's a, it's a, I, I know there's always this controversy when bands are inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame about which members are inducted and yeah. and i and i would assume that when maiden are that it will that it will be the, the six current guys and i think that's right and I, on the one level i don't have a problem with it because you know they are the band but it would be a shame if if people like blaze were kind of written out of history or clive burr uh, for example i mean like if clive burr, burr is not posthumously inducted into the yeah. Rock Hall of Fame, that will be a real stain on that institution, I think. 
Yeah, that's it's a very stained institution already. But I, I personally think that if they get if that comes along and they say we're inducting Iron Maiden, but we're only gonna induct these six guys or you know the classic era, I, I think Steve Harris would just I think Steve Harris would tell them to stick it where the sun don't shine. I'd say he'd say no, that, I'm not gonna do that. You know they're 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 so different than other bands. It's like a, a couple of things you said a lot there, so. One thing is about Kiss and Iron Maiden is huge differences is when Kiss put the makeup back on in 96, to me at that point, they became, instead of being a creative force because they had done Revenge and they were working on Carnival of Souls, instead of being a creative force moving forward, trying to forge their way out in the world of music, they became a nostalgic act 100%. Even though they've... Right. released psycho circus and monster and uh sonic boom in the you know in the past however many years it's been whereas iron maiden when when adrian and bruce came back you know i've heard interviews with bruce where he said i'll come back but we're gonna have to keep you know m- making our you know forging our path i'm not i don't want to be a part of a nostalgic band i want to still be creating new music and i want to move forward and uh, you know, and, and and I love that. I, I really think what Kiss should have done is they should have done a reunion tour when they did it, you know, because people wanted to see it, whatever. And then once they got done with, a, say, a reunion tour, and then maybe a second leg of a reunion tour, they should have taken the makeup back off, went back to the band with Eric Singer and Bruce Kulick, released the Carnival of Souls. and But they don't have that kind of integrity. They're more, and I get it that they got to make a living, but Kiss is definitely more about the money and obviously like you said when when bruce and adrian came back a part of that was that maiden was not i think they were on the upward trajectory i think the next album with blaze would have been a step forward and it would have taken them to another level not obviously not like power slave levels but from where they were but getting bruce back and getting Adrian back, you know, fans are very, well, you see it. Fans are fair weather. You got a lot of people that are just stuck in the eighties. I went to the legacy of the beast show and there was a group of guys sitting right in front of us. You know, when they come out, they played aces high when they played two minutes to midnight, when they played the trooper, when they play the number of the beast, man, these guys are on their feet and they're singing along and they're yelling. But when they played sign of the cross or the Klansman or, um, for the greater good of God, things that were not from that classic era, they were sitting down. And I was just like, well, I know what kind of fans I got in front of me, which I was glad they sat down, you know, but yeah, it but was, I, think, um, I, I, I mean, that's, that's a pity. I mean, I understand it. I mean, um, sure, that, that's sure. That's going to be the same for, for any of these bands who have been around for years, but somewhere in that arena, there would have been a kid um, like I was when I saw Kiss for the first time in 1983, and I think I was 11, and I'm standing on a seat at the back of an arena in London, and I'm jumping up and down uh, on my seat in excitement because I can't believe that I'm getting to see these guys in the flesh. So somewhere yeah. in that Maiden show that, you, that you're talking about, somewhere there would have been like a kid of 11 who's just so excited to be experiencing this stuff. And he is going to be listening to something like the Klansman going, 
well, this song is amazing. And, I, and then he's yeah. going to go home and he's going to rock out to it. And I think, um, again, th this comes back to what you and I were saying about Maiden having integrity and they believe in their in their new material. So whereas um, Kiss would put out Monster or Sonic Boom and then they would play like one or two songs from them, but Maiden yeah. are going to come out and they're either going to play a handful of songs or in the most extreme example, they're going to play the whole album. And I think um, <laughs> g getting those guys back in the band was was creatively um, absolutely 100% the right thing to do. Um, so for me, it's more interesting what they've achieved creatively than what they've achieved commercially. So I'm, I'm just looking at the, at the Maiden songs that I put in the book and a lot of, a lot of Adrian's songs. And um, as you know, I, yeah. I'm a huge fan of Adrian. I think he's, he is my favorite writer in Maiden. And, um, the bulk of Adrian's songs in the book are after he came back into the band. Um, so when you've, if you've got a song like Passchendaele, for example, the fact that they're prepared to do something like that, let alone before you get to something like um, Empire of the Clouds, yeah. know, the fact that they've still got that ambition and that at their age where they could just say, well, do you know what, we'll just retrade riffs that we did in, in 1984. Um, <laughs> but they don't do that they keep doing something different. So um, Passion Day would be a really good example. And I'm, I'm so glad that that's in the book. And then another really good example, um, and I know this is a, a Steve Harris song, would be um, When the Wild Wind Blows. And I don't think I don't think When the Wild Wind Blows really sounds like anything else that they've done. And that's one of the reasons why I put it in, because I thought it's not just your, it's not a textbook um, Steve Harris epic. Like a, a textbook Steve Harris epic to me is a song like Alexander the Great, which I think might be my least yeah. favorite Maiden song. I would rather listen to those Blaze albums on repeat than ever <laughs> listen to Alexander the Great ever again. Wow, um, that's saying something. So, and and some of those other songs, like like the last three songs on Peace of Mind, to me they're just really boring. Um, and I'm, you know, I, this this would be the point where I'm glad I live in South Africa because because I'm sure there's going to be lots of Maiden fans going, we're going to track this guy down and we're going to kill him because he just said that songs on Peace of Mind were boring. <laughs> well, I don't care. I, those songs are boring. And I don't want to listen to those really by-the-numbers epics. I want to hear Maiden doing interesting things that are out of their comfort zone. And so something like Passchendaele is and certainly something like um, yeah. When the Wild Wind Blows is as well. I've got a friend that I've had on my podcast before, and I've given him the moniker, the most hated man in podcast land. But with your last comments, you might be stealing his crown. <laughs> I really think that it, uh, to be, even at the time um, when I was, uh, you know, a teenage headbanger and I was in the Iron Maiden fan club at that point, even at the time, I thought Peace of Mind was a patchy album. And I think that there are, I think... The the good stuff on there is great stuff. I mean, Where right. Eagles Dare, there's, you could make an argument for Where Eagles Dare being the greatest Iron Maiden song, and that was an easy choice when I was putting um, my new book together. Um, and I, I can't deny The Trooper, and I can't deny Still Life. But then there's a lot of stuff on there that is just the kind of the more plodding, proggier side of the bat. I mean, I've, I've sort of made my peace with... Um, Flight of Icarus. I, I hated Flight of Icarus at the time, and I, I couldn't believe oh, wow. the, the band, the, the band who had put out um, "Run to the Hills," which was so 
dynamic and and smack you in the face that they put out this song that to me was like you know just really plodding and that's the side of the band that i don't like at all i I like whether it's steve or whether it's adrian i like this the stuff that is faster and poppier and catchier by and large that's a huge generalization because obviously when the wild wind blows does not fall into that category at all yeah Um, yeah but that that's the stuff that really appeals to me and you and i have, have have chatted before about somewhere in time and i know and again i think this is a very um i think it's i i certainly acknowledge that i'm in the minority everyone else in the world seems to love somewhere in time and to me that is that was the beginning of the end um for me um because i oh, thought wow. somewhere in time was such a monstrously substandard album by their standards um and i didn't like it at all and when i saw them on the somewhere in time tour i was really unimpressed and more for me that caused me to actually ignore the seventh sun uh, era when it was happening so i like i said earlier i did listen to that um castle donnington 1988 monsters of rock headliner and i was really impressed but even that yeah. did not make me go back and check out seventh sum because i thought well it's just going to be a, a retread of stuff they've done before and and now i feel like a fool because listening to it retrospectively i realized that seventh sun i think is 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 their strongest album from start to finish i don't think there's a moment on that album that is not superb um so i i fully acknowledge that i'm kind of out of step but i when i say these things it's not to be disrespectful to the band or to be disrespectful to people like yourself who like those oh sure, those different sure. Er- eras um it, it, it's it's because i feel very passionate about metal in general and maiden in particular that i've got these very very strong opinions so when they when when um when they pulled uh, still life out again which i think they did around 2006 when they put that back into the set that was yeah, that to... was a that was a tears in the eyes moment for me because i i i, I never dreamed that that song would get would get a, a second shot at the set at the set list um right so when they pull little surprises like that out that's fantastic and and you can't imagine I, I guess metallica sort of do it to a certain extent because they're now putting things in their set from some anger and they're doing it really really well but when you look at bands of that stature you know guns and roses are not going to pull out um their guns and roses are not going to suddenly start playing i don't know the garden for example um <laughs> yeah. because because that's just not what they're about um and i love guns and roses so I, again i don't want to be disrespectful to them and i would certainly Go, be happy to go and see them again but that that's not what they're doing and so i think that with the possible with the possible exception of metallica i think maiden are really sort of carving um a path that is very much their own because oh yeah no no one else of that stature is as brave as they are in terms of well yeah we, we will give you a tour like legacy of the beast but but you're also going to have to you're also going to have to keep up with what we want to do creatively as well and it and that's sure. and that's really admirable and i think that will be that will be their legacy and i think people will look back on them 
and, and Slayer as well. You know, the, the, these these bands who really stuck to their guns um, and didn't didn't just give you what you wanted. It was like, no, we're gonna we're gonna do what we want, and if you like it as well, then great. Um, but we're not we're not hugely concerned if you don't. And I and I don't think that's arrogance. I think that's integrity. Oh sure, and and they've got the fan base to to back that up. Well, they 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 stick to their guns. They and and everyone doesn't like everything, but like you said, you get a greatest hits tour, and then they came out and played six songs from the Book of Souls on that tour, and they weren't six songs that were three or four minutes long. You know, some of those songs are 12, 11, 13 minutes long. So, um. And I will say this, um, based on your comments on somewhere in time and peace of mind and things like that, I would rather talk to somebody that has a real opinion and is not afraid to share their opinion, whether it's whether it agrees with me or not. I would rather ha- talk to somebody that that just doesn't go, oh well, maiden rules, everything they did is great. Um, I think it, it it's integrity and I think it's honesty that, that, that gets that to come out. And I, I would rather have that conversation with somebody and, you know, uh, music is art and art is subjective and everybody, we all look at it differently. We all hear it differently. We all have different opinions and, you know, a lot of people like me personally, I think somewhere in time is a fantastic album. <laughs> I love it. Right. You know, and. I do. I think I agree with you a little more about peace of mind, a little bit of it. Uh, I think it's, I don't think it's, I've got friends that that's their very favorite album. And me personally, um, it's a good album, but some of it's great. And then there's a couple of things that aren't as great. Now, I do think that the very last track on the album is a good track uh, to tame a land. I think it's a really good track. But like I said, I would rather talk to somebody and hear somebody's opinion that has an opinion that's not just, Oh, like, well, like, like Kiss fans can be, oh, I love every, you know, like I, I won't, I've been in conversations with people that say anything after the first six Kiss albums with the original four members, there's nothing that could be on Creatures of the Night that could be better than anything on Kiss, Hotter Than Hell, Dress to Kill, Love Gun, Rock and Roll Over, or Destroyer. And I'm just like, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. no, and, you're right. And you can really upset people with that. <laughs> yeah. The other, the other thing, again, I, I've got huge admiration for Steve, as, I, as I'm sure everyone who, who listens to your podcast has. It's like, you know, that's the one common denominator. Whatever we might feel about different aspects of Maiden, it, it, everyone has got to give maximum respect to Steve Harris. And because yeah. he had such a um, a singular vision for the band and he worked so hard and he was – so creative that I think um, I, I, I don't feel inclined to damn him for the moments when his creative inspiration ran dry. And, and I, I think, um, although I, I, as, as, you, as you completely correctly say, art is subjective. So the fact that I don't think Somewhere in Time is a great album or even a good album, um, that's, <laughs> inco- that's inconsequential if other people and the majority of people do think it's a great album. Um, but... Um, from the point of view of Iron Maiden's history, um, they were creatively running dry. 
and because they they've yeah. done this extraordinary they did the world slavery tour which lasted six million years um and mm-hmm. by their own admission if you if you if you talk to um bruce or or steve about that period they they were they were tired um and yeah. in the case of um steve he's been work at that point when they're putting somewhere in time together he's been he's been that, that uh, that's a decade then so he's been slogging his guts out for a decade um p- pushing this brand of of uncommercial music um into into the charts and hearts a- a- around the world so if if uh, like to, to me my problem with alexander the great or court somewhere in time is that they sound like maiden by numbers it's like oh well we've got to have an epic yeah. opener and we've got to have an epic closer and i'm glad that people enjoy those but i don't because sure. to me they're like cookie cutter identikit maiden um and when uh, and and so that's why i'm kicking myself for uh, missing out on seventh <laughs> son at the time because seventh yeah. son is the album that somewhere in time in my opinion should have been and um, because it is really creative and it does take the the music in different directions and they um god bless them they actually um let adrian uh you know they kind of loosened his reins again because by that point obviously um y- you've had a couple of hit singles um that adrian yeah. has been responsible for um of uh, of power slave and somewhere in time and it's like oh well maybe this guy but i can understand it why if you're steve harris and you've spent um your in, entire adult life building this band kind of in your image i can understand why it was difficult for him to allow adrian and bruce to have more of an input um, and why that was a gradual process um but if and and if he hadn't done that then i don't think you and i would be talking about maiden now because i think they would have ended or they or they would have become purely a nostalgia act it, it's it's all credit to steve that that he that he did loosen the reins and let those guys in because they do um and again i don't i don't mean this in a disrespectful way but i think that bruce and adrian have got a much better sense of melody than steve has i think steve's strengths are his his vision and his ambition um and and putting together those epic songs and when he when he gets those epic songs right um no one does them better uh, and so uh, in the book i quote adrian talking about passiondale and he said you know people associate me more with the com- more commercial stuff and i thought i would right, have a right. go at writing an epic and 5 days later i'm still trying to write an epic um so <laughs> at, at that point he gets a grasp of of what Steve has been doing for, you know, <laughs> exactly 25 years by that point, you know, it's not easy, you know, writing a song like rhyme of the ancient Mariner, where do you even begin with that? So oh, yeah, um, no kidding. It, it's, it's an extraordinary achievement. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're lucky that we're, we're lucky. We're lucky to be on a planet with Iron Maiden, man. We're lucky. <laughs> I agree with that. Yes, absolutely. I tell you what, I got I got two more questions for you here, and um, uh, first one is outside of um, well, I, I don't well. Let me just ask you, who would you say are your favorite bands of all time? Um, uh, Kiss definitely. They made such a huge impression on me when I was a kid, and uh, uh, they 
they really they really shaped a lot of um, of what I think about music. So even when I, 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 I should give a, a little warning now. So any of your listeners who 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 listened to my comments about peace of mind and were like, well, we're just going to turn this podcast off now. Um, if they've stuck with us, then what I'm about to say might make them say, well, this guy really is, doesn't know what he's talking about. Oh, when, boy. When the, when the Spice Girls came along, I thought the Spice Girls were tremendous. And as it happened, I liked their music. I'm a fan of pop music, so I had no problem with what they were doing musically. But I also yeah. recognized in them a lot of what I liked about Kiss. So when, when I was a kid getting into Kiss um, – the music was important. The iconography was important. But what was also really, really important and what they very, very rarely get credit for was that they were they were always telling their fans um, in concert and in interviews and even sometimes in their songs, believe in yourself, believe in yourself yeah. and go for your dreams and don't let any of the people around you who are, who are saying that you're dumb and you won't achieve it, don't let them hold you back. And the Spice Girls were saying exactly the same things, um, and they were saying it specifically to to girls, and that was fantastic. And I think, sure. and all the people who kind of mocked them and they said, "Well, it's just empty sloganeering and it's all marketing." Um, what they're underestimating is is what a, a huge um, psychological effect that had on had on their fans. If you're eight years old. You're not interested in hearing about feminism, um, yeah. But if you, if you've got a bunch of um, pop stars who you look up to and admire and like musically, telling you believe in yourself, girl power, then that's a, a hugely important message for a kid, and that's what I got from Kiss at the same time. So, okay. um, you know, my, my other favorite bands, you know, like Pink Floyd, I've loved throughout my entire life you know from some of my very earliest memories are listening to pink floyd and i'll still listen to them now but they didn't make me they made me think you know they made me kind of made me think about certain things but they didn't make me believe in myself particularly because that wasn't the message that they were propagating um sure whereas i think um i i think some of your hard rock and metal bands like um like kiss and like Maiden as well, you know, um, when you see Bruce on stage, he's he's really passionate, and he's really passionate about um, um, uh, acknowledging the audience and acknowledging what they bring to the Iron Maiden experience. And in, in the same way that, um, well, it's not in the same way because because they're they're approaching it in slightly different ways. But like when you see James Hetfield at Metallica shows now. He's all about <laughs> yeah. love and inclusivity and, you know, we're one big family. And that's kind of the message that, that, that Bruce will put out from a maiden stage as well, that this is the maiden family and yeah. that, that you feel that you're part of something. And I think that is hugely valuable. You know, we live in a very fractured world, you know, particularly you guys in America. And I'm not, I don't want to get, political at this point but you know yeah there is there is no doubt that that america in particular is is very fractured and we've got the same stuff going on in in uh, in south africa and certainly there's the same stuff going on in britain as well where people are yeah. you know the, the battle lines are being drawn across society so if you've got 
Bruce Dickinson or Paul Stanley or James Hetfield standing on a stage saying, we are all one, then that's mm-hmm. an incredibly valuable message. And I'd like to see more of that. I'd like to see more of that across culture and across the whole of our lives. I don't want it only I don't want James Hetfield and Bruce Dickinson to be outliers. I want more people to be saying, no, actually we're all one big family. And if we want to survive as a species, then then this is actually we need we need some more love and unity here. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's one thing that I really always love about Maiden is when they do blood brothers and Bruce gets up there and says, you know, it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what religion you are, what your sexual orientation is, you know, what sports teams you like, you name anything divisive among people. He says, he says, if you're here, we're all part of this big family. And, and I love that. It's, 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 it's very, it's, it's unifying and it's, it's really, it's truth. And it's, I, I hate that, I hate all the division in the world as well. And I, but I love that. I love just the fact that people can come together and it makes, and I think it's because you, when you're at a show, you're looking around and it's, it's everybody, you know, it's all kinds of different people. And um, it is, it's really diverse. And I think if it's particularly with those bands now that are just really legendary. So uh, Metallica, Maiden and Guns, if you go to those, um, shows it's really diverse Mm -hmm. and so like one of the really heartwarming things about watching the flight 666 movie was was seeing those different audiences of different ethnicities and you see um i can't remember was was it pakistan or india that they played um, and there's footage of it in the flight 666 movie and then you you see these guys and they're the same as everyone else. It's a bunch of goofy teenagers right. like going nuts and playing a guitar. And it doesn't sure. matter whether they're from Pakistan or whether they're from Texas or whether they're from Cape Town or whether they're from London. Because yeah. if, if you're if if as soon as the opening notes of the trooper starts, that's universal. You know, you're you're grabbing your air guitar at that point, or, or oh, you're yeah. singing along at the top of the of your voice. So whatever your cultural or ethnic or political or religious background. You're gonna you're gonna be united by the power of Steve Harris's galloping bass at that point. <laughs> yeah, if you love music, you know music brings people together, and that's like I said, there's there's no better place to see it than when you're at a show and you see all these people, and and that's one thing that I I think that having you know when the since the world has been shut down since about March. It's one thing that we've lost is that that's one way that people really come together is with music. And you take away all this live music that people go and attend together and meet up and spend time with one another and meet new people. And like I said, it's, it's people from all walks of life. That's one thing that we've really lost this year and, and, and the world's in turmoil. So it, it is. That. And, uh, it, we do. We do need that, and I think one of the things that um, is is so important about getting that back is to is to kind of put those um, those divisions behind us. And and in it's a lot more trivial. I'm I'm not suggesting that this is at all important on a on a big socio political level. But um, as you know, in the heavy metal community, there's always these debates about. Well, that this is metal, or that isn't metal, or or that <laughs> that isn't that isn't true metal, or whatever. And I think those, I don't, I don't mind that those that those debates go on because 
you know, it, it does at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. But it's a little bit annoying. And I find those kind of debates a bit dispiriting. And I actually address that in um, the 666 Songs book, where I say, oh, cool. well, if, if you were, if you do a book like mine, and you only stick to true metal, the stuff that declares itself to be metal, then you're talking about Judas Priest, uh, Manowar and Saxon and pretty much nothing else. And <laughs> I yeah. think that would be really boring. I, I, and I, I don't say that out of, out of disrespect to those bands, but um, metal is a, a huge canvas with all these different colours. So I've got Pantera in the book, but I've also got Paramore. And I, I think... Um, I think I think you know you can like metal and appreciate all those things and acknowledge that they are all a part an important part of the tree. So you know, and, and that's you know, I, I I fell into that trap myself when I was a kid because I I thought that Maiden were going to be turning into Jethro Tull on Seventh Son, and I thought, well, I don't want to hear Maiden <laughs> doing an acoustic, you know, Bruce Dickinson's singing over an acoustic guitar. I don't want to hear yeah. that. And but I was a kid at the time. I'd like to think that as an adult, I, I would be more open-minded, especially because, as I, as I said earlier, I, I was clearly wrong. You know, they weren't turning into Jethro Tull. They were doing stuff that was really interesting. And I should have acknowledged that in 1988, not, you know, 10, 20 years later. So um, I, can't, I can't actually remember the question you've asked me now. that's okay no we're just kind of conversing really about it but i'll tell you what last question i have for you is a very obvious question for you is well it's a twofold question how can people find you where can people find you and where and how can they purchase your book um they can get the book from all the usual places from you know barnes and noble and uh, and amazon all those online places and the publisher you can buy it direct from the publisher's website as well it's lawrenceking.com and that's lawrence with a u not a w um and uh, people can find me uh, i'm 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 reasonably active on twitter i've i've kind of got the twitter bug over the past few months when i've been um working on the book so i do i do have a website but that's mainly um you know for the for the books that you were very kindly talking about earlier so in in terms of interacting um if you look for bruno mcdonald one on twitter and i've got the 666 songs um logo uh as my my twitter avatar and I've, I've put together a Spotify playlist of the Maiden songs that are in the book as well. So I'll be putting that on Twitter as well. Um, oh, cool. And so people can, people can check out the choices and they can go, well, this guy clearly doesn't know what he's talking about because clearly <laughs> Alexander the Great is a fantastic song. Um, but that's good because I want to encourage debate. And, and like you and I were saying oh, sure. earlier, there's, there's no point in, in just saying Number of the Beast is a great song. Number of the Beast is a great song. And I – and – I loved it yeah. in 1982. I love it in 2020. And I will probably love Number of the Beast until the day I die. But I don't want uh-huh. to write a book telling you that you should listen to Number of the Beast because, like it or not, you're going to hear it anyway. I'd rather tell you that you should listen to um, Passchendaele, for example. Yeah. Because you, you might not hear that unless you seek it out. But you should because it's a fantastic piece of work. Oh, sure, sure. And I, I'll say this, you know, when I started my podcast, when I, I originally it was a different name, but then I it became Iron Maiden. The 
the when I started out, I knew that I did not want to go with just the easiest thing. I thought the easy thing to do would be to say, let me do a review of the number of the beast or peace of mind or power slave, the stuff that all the eighties people. So the first thing I reviewed by them was the final frontier. Cause I was like, I know that's a pretty divisive album, even among fans that like the post 2000 material. That's usually thought of as one of the weakest ones. And I thought, I like that album and, and I, I like all their albums. I mean, obviously you like some more than others, but I thought I like this album and I want to start out with something that's going to tell people that I'm not the number of the beast guy or the power slave guy. I'm the guy that's into it from front to back. So, and, and that mentality in your book and, and just not putting the, the staples is, I think it's a very good thing. Yeah, I mean, and just 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 quickly on that. I mean, if if I put on the final frontier, I would listen to it. If I put on um, Number of the Beast, there's some songs that I'm skipping. And you know, when people <laughs> say that's a great album, it's like, well, have you heard Gangland recently? Or does does anyone does anyone put that album on and not skip Invaders, um, which is rubbish? <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> it's not a good song. Um, you know, the, the great bits of number are great. Hallowed Be Thy Name, which I put in the book, and that and that Hallowed Be Thy Name was the one um, choice in the book where I thought I'm going to go for the obvious one because there is no denying Hallowed Be Thy Name. Yeah, it's an extraordinary, yeah. extraordinary song um, and, and and definitely a contender for I think that, I think there was a book that was kind of similar to mine that came out a few years ago. Um, I think it might have been one of the Martin Popoff's he 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 publishes a book every 15 seconds and i think yeah he did a book that was kind of similar to mine and i think hello be thy name wound up as like maybe the number one heavy metal song of all time i can't remember for sure oh, wow. and and if it did then fair enough because that's such an extraordinary extraordinary song um it, even for a band that had a couple of albums under its belt at that point to 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 do a song like that which is comparable with the best of zeppelin in my opinion um, sure, but but there's other stuff on on Number of the Beast that is very very skippable. Um, whereas the Final Frontier, um, it demands your attention, and and uh, you, you know you, there's there's really interesting stuff. And the fact that they're coming up with an album that is, as you say, maybe not everyone's cup of tea, but still a really interesting album, an album that demands your attention and demands an actual opinion to be coming up with an album like that at that point in their career is absolutely extraordinary. And I don't think they get oh, yeah. enough. They, they, I don't, maybe they do. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they get enough credit for that <laughs> because I think that to the wider public, people think that maybe Maiden are just like ACDC and they just put out the same album in a different sleeve. Um, and, Ooh, but, yeah. but Maiden are, Maiden are, are not like that. They, they, every album does have its own very distinct identity. Um, not, oh, not, sure. not that I think there's anything wrong with doing the same thing over and over again. I mean, I said earlier that I love Slayer. T to me, yeah. Slayer got it absolutely right with Show No Mercy, and then they did it over and over and over again throughout the rest of their career, and they did it brilliantly. Um, so there's yeah. nothing wrong with that, but equally, you don't only want bands like that. You also want bands who are creative and questing and adventurous um like maiden and to some extent like metallica and you have to accept that sometimes um they're gonna they're gonna stumble 
Um, sure. If, if you're going to experiment on a re- on a regular basis, then not all of those experiments are going to work. But that makes it fascinating, and that's what makes looking back at Maiden's um, back catalogue so interesting. You know, the fact that you and I could sit here and have a discussion about, well, are those Blaze Bailey albums any good? Um, I, I, whereas, you know, if you and I were sitting here on an ACDC podcast debating the merits of Ball Breaker, for example, I think we would struggle to <laughs> even remember what songs were even on Ball Breaker. Um, yeah. Because it's just another ACDC album. And I say that with respect because, like the rest of the world, I love ACDC. But that, yeah. that's, one of the re- that's one of the things that makes maiden such a rich and rewarding band to be a fan of i think oh yeah yeah i definitely agree i definitely agree well bruno i gotta say uh, i really enjoyed talking to you i appreciate you taking the time and um, i wish you the very best with your book Thank you very much, Steve. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Um, and uh, I'd like to apologize to all the KISS fans that we've apo- that we've offended. Um, and I, <laughs> I'd like to reassure everyone that, that Steve and I have huge, huge admiration for the KISS guys. Um, and just as a final note, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. And I'd, I'd like to wish you and your listeners a, a very Merry Christmas and a, a much, much better 2021. Hey, same to you. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know it was a lot of fun to have. Uh, it's all, it's always fun, always fun to talk about Iron Maiden. For me, it's fun to talk about all the bands that I love, but it's always fun, especially with a guy like him who's looked through all these different bands and has a lot of different interests. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, and if you're interested, go out and get his book. It's, uh, I have a copy of it. I just got recently. I haven't had a chance to go all the way through it yet. Uh, I'm horrible at reading books. So, um, anyway, I will go ahead and end on that note. So on behalf of myself, on behalf of Bruno, on behalf of Iron Maiden, Eddie and the boys, Things in life are bad They can really make you mad Other things just make you swear and curse When you're chewing on life's gristle That grumble Give a whistle And this'll help things turn out for the best And Always look on the bright side of life Always look on the light side of life If life seems jolly rotten There's something you've forgotten And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing When you're feeling in the dumps Don't be silly chumps Just purse your lips and whistle That's the thing Always look on the bright
Face the curtain with a bow. Forget about your seat. Give the audience a grin. Enjoy it. It's your last chance, anyhow. So always look on the bright side of death. 